So hello everyone, um, today we are lucky enough to have a special guest with us for our podcast once again. I want to introduce Dr. Tamara Scheer, who teaches and researches on the topics of Austria-Hungary and in particular the First World War at the University of Vienna, where I also did my master studies. So thank you very much, uh, Tamara, for joining us today. Well, hello. I'm really happy. It's me. It's only the third time I'm allowed again to work from my office. So it's not my home office. It's my office again in a beautiful campus, which was former a hospital in Vienna. And um, hello. And I'm super, super. It's a super, super honor to contribute to this uh, to this because I'm a big fan for many years now. And so I'm super happy that I I can contribute here and join you for the discussion wow i'm uh yeah i'm i'm impressed that was um i'm glad we can contribute to your uh the joys of working from your office and i've also been a fan for years since i saw you speak about the occupation of serbia um a long time ago at one of the kaziana conferences but um, let us jump into the questions from our viewers. The first, before we do though, can you give us a very brief introduction, a bit of context about the reforms in the Austro-Hungarian army and the rules relating to language? Uh, maybe I should start a bit earlier and uh, explain why I'm doing this research or much better to say how the topic found me. So since my master's thesis, I was always interested in how this multilingual, multi-ethnic, multi-religious empire worked. And so for a couple of time, but not for too long, because I was already always interested in the army, uh, I found the army in particular of importance because it's not just dealing with one ethnicity, one religious group, or one language, or one nationality, but the army as an institution, especially after uh, the compromise, the Ausgleich with Hungary in 1867, it remained the only institution which worked all over the monarchy. And because of uh, a year later, after the compromise, they introduced a compulsory military service. It also affected many thousands of men coming from all social strata from all religions from all over the monarchy and so I was always interested in and this is how I jumped into this language topic how how did the army manage this linguistic diversity in the army in particular because officers and the army is always interested in, be, in being efficient so as efficient enough as possible and so this um, uh, having to train so many uh, citizen soldiers uh, poses a big challenge on efficiency, but also on to save budget as much as possible. Yes, of course, there's always a delicate, uh, a delicate balance. So, um, yeah, then how did, um, how did the uh, army reforms uh, look by the time the war broke out? So um, my research focus is um, starts with the compromise in 1867 and ends with the end of the First World War in 1918. And I started with the compromise because the, the former empire was transformed 
into um, two entities which now made up the empire, so Austria and Hungary. And for example, it's often reported or transported to be one country or one state, but it was not. Not in a way because it had two parliaments and two citizenships like Austrians and Hungarians and two parliaments. Uh, the only and there were only three responsibilities which remained uh, so-called joint, gemeinsam, which means K and K. Uh, and the, among these was the army. And so because uh, the constitutions implemented a compulsory military service too, the whole army, which comprised mercenaries most of the time before 1867, had to be totally reformed. So it was no longer like professional soldiers uh, working in the army over many years, but many thousands of young men joining the army and had to be trained every year who were coming from all over monarchy. Uh, the compulsory military service, so the active one in uniform, uh, lasted for three years. This only uh, was reduced to two years um, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, what was also important is that um, for this training, uh, and this was taken from the constitution, uh, that every citizen has the right, at least in Austria, so it's uh, taken from the Austrian constitution, that every citizen has the right to use his own language before public institutions, and the army was among these public institutions. So the army had to be reorganized in a way uh, that uh, in all these casernes spread all over the monarchy, uh, there were enough uh, officers, but also NCOs available who spoke the languages of the conscripts and to train them properly in their native language. I mean, this was on the paper. How it actually really worked or did not work is something that all right, and we're going to get a bit more into the details of that as we go along. Um, let's jump in then to our viewer questions. So one of our viewers uh, who goes by the internet handle of Smeezy Power asked about religion. And he asked whether there was any sort of provisions made in the army for different religions in the empire, and he uh, lists some of them, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, Jews, and Muslims, and whether there were kind of differing levels of motivation for these groups uh, to join the army, although I suppose conscription played a role as a, as a motivation. <laughs> well, the religious diversity is also really important. I mean, what I look mostly upon for my, uh, and this study will become hopefully a book soon, is the language diversity. So the, the official category, uh, the conscripts in the Habsburg army, and this is important, I'm dealing here with the Karl and K, so the Habsburg army, not with the other forces, like the Honved, the Hungarian territorial defense or the Austrian territorial defense. I'm, not, I'm also not dealing with the Navy because there were different um, different regulations. But the conscripts were uh, divided along language. There was a set of officially recognized languages and only these languages made up nationalities. 
So the soldiers were asked for their uh, were not asked for the native language when they joined the army, but uh, about all their language use. But it was then uh, they were then categorized uh, according to a native language and nationality. So this was the most important distinguishing line in the army. Of course, there were several different also recognized religious communities. I mean, also during Habsburg times, there were lots of like free churches or something like that. So it was also like with the languages, there were um, religious groups recognized. Like the, the, the biggest ones, like, I mean, the, the bulk of soldiers were Roman Catholic or Greek Catholic, mostly Ruthenians from Galicia and also from um, Bukovina. Uh, so Catholics made up uh, the vast majority, but there were also Protestants, Jews, and after 1878, when uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina was occupied, I mean, it was not officially till the annexation um, a part of the monarchy, but they invented in the 1880s uh, compulsory military service like for the rest of the monarchy. So they had also to deal with um, Muslim religious rules and had to take them into account. Um, I maybe pick... Here's some like what happened with the Muslim soldiers. Um, when I first started to doing research on the army and I had in mind, you know, the discussion which was going on in other armies in Europe uh, at the moment, like, oh, we need to build in the caserns own praying rooms and we have to cook differently and so on and so on. And I was thinking of, okay, let's go to the archive and find what were the problems in Habsburg times. Mm -hmm. And the really interesting thing is, which really makes historians shiver if you don't find anything. So there was no discussion. They just did it. And why? I mean, uh, for the emperor, Francis Joseph, um, the only problem was, and, and it was what they disliked in the Habsburg monarchy, is if you had no religion. So confessions laws in German. Mm -hmm. But all other religious rules were respected at without any discussion. So they already, there were lots of Jews, they lived all over the monarchy, so they were already aware of how to cook for Jews. So you just have different cooks, different meals and so on. So it was never a problem. What is also important, so Muslims, um, most uh, Muslims from Bosnia-Herzegovina were um, joined uh, the Bosniak, so-called Bosniak infantry regiments. Um, but they did not, uh, not all of them did their service in Bosnia-Herzegovina, so they were sent mostly to Vienna, Budapest and Graz. And what is really important is that in these regiments or on company level, um, they did not distinguish between uh, Orthodox Bosnian Herzegovinians and, and Muslim ones and Catholic ones. So they were trained jointly. So they were usually soldiers and conscripts of the Habsburg army were separated along language, but this was not a big deal because there was only one recognized language in the Bosnian regiments. It was, well, there was a huge discussion about this, if you should call it Serbo-Croatian, Serbian, Croatian or Bosnian. That was an internal discussion, but most officers were convinced it's one and the same language and it's only nationalists and linguists struggling over that. That was the, the army internal opinion on that so they were they were mixed and the same goes for Jews and all other religions so they were just it was something they simply organized and there was no big deal okay um, yeah it I, I also thought of the Indian army 
uh, during the First World War, so I've read a little bit about that. And that maybe ties in also slightly to our next question, which is from a user who goes by Anthony Gumbau. Um, what about the officers learning the languages of the troops? Um, and I would tack on, what about casualty replacement? Because that's a very difficult skill to learn. You're not going to train someone up in an officer school in a couple months to be fluent in Slovenian or Romanian or whatever, or especially Hungarian, obviously. Well, that's, uh, I mean, I wrote... I needed a couple of years and, and, and many, many weeks and months in archives uh, to figure out um, how this worked or did not work. So there were lots of rules, but we all know that you have rules and what you want to achieve and what you want to uphold, and then you have how it really worked. Um, the thing is that every officer was obliged to learn the officially recognized language in a company upon upon arrival within three years. I mean, of course, if you're or if you're a native German speaker and you are now sent to Budapest and you have to learn Hungarian within three years, you know you will never succeed or at good least. Luck. I mean, you can good luck. <laughs> Um, but on the other hand, and this uh, we should not underestimate, of course, there were lots of officers who were sent to train soldiers in languages they did not speak. And also the, the soldiers had to were faced with many officers who did not speak their languages. But on the other hand, it's really important. And this is also something how you should deal with sources as a historian. So usually what is written down and what we still can get to know in archives is what people wrote down. And what people write down is usually when something does not work or something is funny, worse to be mentioned. So they, the 90% of when it's, it worked somehow, you don't find it in archives. And all people are dead. I cannot do oral history and ask them. So usually, and this is what I tried to find out, one thing is, of course, many officers ended up in companies and they really, and you find in their diaries how desperate they were, because not not particular because they were not able to train them um, properly, because usually the officers were supported by NCOs who spoke the languages, who usually originated from the same um region, Habsburg region, as the soldiers or the conscripts. So usually they were supported by NCOs. But what um, officers were really afraid of, that they lose their prestige towards the conscripts, towards people who are, from a social point of view, so much lower than him. So it was more a problem like this. And if you read their diaries, you figure out that some some officers developed something like a hatred toward a particular nationality just because they had to train soldiers who always laughed about them. So now it comes to these officers not speaking the languages, but this was very often debated by nationalists in the parliaments. So every nationalist brought that up. Slovene nationalists like Habsburg monarchy is not uh, taking care about our national pressure, our language, and, and so on. And you can replace all the nationalists because they brought up the same phrases. So then you figure out or you think as a historian that, okay, no officers knew the languages and all soldiers were so dissatisfied with the training environment. Unfortunately, um, officers love to write and many of their diaries ended up in archives. It's much harder if you're looking for a real ordinary soldiers 
experience. So I found some of them from different languages. And the interesting thing is, and I mean, everybody of us who served in an army or had some training as a soldier, we know the most funny thing is if soldiers can laugh about the officers. So imagine that you are a soldier and an officer is coming who is so higher so so more important and he fails in just telling you go and pick up something so usually if you find these stories in the soldiers diaries it's something they made fun about the officers another thing is that many officers and ncos tried to learn them as much as possible german uh, which also was debated in the in the parliaments, like they are forced to learn German. Interestingly, lots of ordinary soldiers wrote down that they were really thankful that they grabbed some German words or Hungarian sometimes, um, because it uh, helped them to, for their career afterwards, find a better job and so on. So um, it was something, it was really nationalized, all the debate. Uh, well, the officers, lots of them failed, but on the other hand, and this is also something in 90% of cases, it somehow worked that the, that the soldiers were efficiently trained. So it was not just a big deal because they were always the NCOs. This is also something um, I looked upon in my book because uh, usually the NCOs are totally forgotten and everybody of us who knows uh, military training knows there is not only the ordinary soldiers and the officers, but the NCO is so important. I mean, this is the person who on a daily basis really lives and deals with the with the conscripts. Now, if memory serves, um, there was a, I believe, a list of common commands in German that were to be used throughout, regardless of the, the particular language of daily work in, in any uh, given regiment. There are certain commands in German and that's the same everywhere. Is that the case or were there variations with that? Well, um, the the, uh, the, the the language system of the Habsburg army, as it was invented with the army reform in 1868, uh, it does not only say that uh, the conscripts have the right to be trained in their native languages, but it also uh, started to regularize which language has to be used when and where. And so we had three levels, something like that, like the command language, which was about 80 words in German. Every Every soldier, regardless of his native language, had to memorize and learn. It's something like, habt acht, dreht um, stellt euch zum Gebet, something like that. Yeah, so like for drills, so that no one has to explain in the field um, advance or something like that. Um, it, it was, it was somehow 80 words and phrases, but it, it depended on the service branch, uh, like the artillery, for example, uh, used different words. Interestingly, there was also a big uh, political discussion on that, that um, so uh, through the command language, um, conscript uh, should be, and this is the effort by the army and the emperor, should be denationalized. Um, in fact, if you read the ordinary soldiers' diaries, lots of them uh, made fun about these words. They used these words even many years after their military service has ended. And what I, uh, what is one of my um, research findings uh, is that, I mean, the army spent such a big effort on creating a corps d'esprit, like a core guys, you know, and through the uniforms, through the double eagle and the symbols. But if you read the diaries of the former conscripts, you see that wherever this 
uh, men went after the military service, they get to know each other through using these command words. So when they met wherever, someone from Vienna met someone from Budapest, uh, somewhere in between, and then they start speaking about the military service, they started using these rechtsum and all these command words. And this is something which, which is my um, argument much more created a common common code esprit than anything else like the propaganda from above um, interesting beside the command words but also, <laughs> there was also the service language the so-called dienstsprache it was also german uh, but it uh, had to be used when officers were talking to each other or with NCOs. So this was German or for the written correspondence between um, military institutions of different levels. And then you had this so-called regimental language system, which was exactly what I already referred to, like all, all conscripts had the right to be trained in their native languages. I've forgotten something to say with the command words. Interestingly, the command words, I mean, although they were constantly referring to the German commands, lots of these words were not at all of German origin, like menage, which comes from French and was used for uh, food and food supply. Lots of the command words uh, still, re uh, still remember the importance of French for military language. And so lots of these um, so-called German command words were not German at all. Yeah. But and just to uh, very briefly give a flavor of some of the example command words that you gave in German for our non-German listeners, there are things like attention, uh, eyes right, about face, you know, these parade ground and very basic movement type of things. Um, now that discussion leads us into our next question, which is from uh, a viewer who goes by the name of Achut Bihani, and he asks about the hierarchy of languages. So he uh, was wondering whether there's a sort of pecking order, like German and Hungarian at the top, then is there a sort of middle level? And I want to I want to attach uh, another question from a different viewer, Vinve, who asks, how fluid were these groups? Like, could someone easily grow up bilingual and kind of belong and function in two language groups? Um, yeah. So the the hierarchy and then the mobility and double belonging between them. Um, I think it's it, it's much easier to illustrate uh, something like a pecking order by two examples. Uh, one example is, of course, German dominated the military life, but on the other hand, um, it's 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 really important to mention that most of the Habsburg languages were at the same time um, majority languages and minority languages. Just one example, German, of course, dominated the army, but German was, especially in Hungary, with its majorization politics, it more and more became a, a language of minor importance. Um, Croatian, for example, was just one language among many others uh, used in Istria, but in civil Croatia, like around Zagreb, 
it was the dominating language in administration. And I think it somehow worked. So if we do not take into account German, which of course dominated, that what balanced the system was that every language was at the same time important, non- But we, we also had kind of a related follow-up question from a viewer uh, by the name of Inve, who asked about the mobility between language groups for lack of a, or like dual belonging. Can people, or how frequent was it for people to sort of belong to two language groups and, and put that to good use in the army or in society? And of course, I'm thinking of uh, Peter Judson's Guardians of the Nations, right, where he talks about this quite a bit. Uh, what was part of my research was also to travel through the former Habsburg monarchy, going into the archives, because I wanted to, I, I was interested in um, how widespread uh, biomultilingualism was among conscripts, so ordinary soldiers who did their three-year military service. These personnel files, in German they are called Grundbuchblätter, Uh, they uh, comprise um, the languages each conscript spoke, or at least the languages a conscript mentioned when he was uh, enlisted. And so I just wanted to figure out if multilingualism, at least mentioned in these personnel files, was so widespread. And there were parts of the Habsburg monarchy where people spoke, or most conscripts spoke only one language. Uh, for example, as a historian interested in language diversity, going through the conscripts from Salzburg or parts of Tyrol, they only spoke German. So it was really almost no one. So for these who spoke only one language, and so it comes also to Peter Judson's um, indifference, um, I mean, this indifferent behavior, switching between identities uh, through language is is more or less non-existing when when you spoke only one language. But on the other hand, there is lots of parts in the former Habsburg Empire where there was really widespread multilingualism. So uh, one of the first um, conscripts uh, in the archive I went through was in Prague for Bohemia. And there were really like... I, I would say half of them uh, were uh, mentioned to speak uh, German and Czech. And interestingly, lots of them had German uh, surnames, but were spoke only Czech or something like that, or Czech was mentioned as the first language. And of course, for these people, soldiers, it was much easier to switch something like, to which company do you want to be put in? And then they can choose between, I want to be trained in German or in, in, in Czech for the next three years. Interestingly, there were also some like indifferent decisions. And I found in some uh, soldiers' diaries that, for example, a um, uh, Ruthenian from Galicia, whose father was or identified with the Polish nationality and his mother Ruthenian, he he called Ruthenian, of course, as his first language, but then he wrote that, yeah, he joined the Poles when being trained in the army because most of his village fellows were were Polish and he wanted to be trained and stay with them. So you find lots of um, examples where because someone was bi or spoke even more languages, chose. And maybe I should also say that uh, what is really important, and this was also part of my research, is uh, that biomultilingualism was really a supportive for a career because most 
ordinary there was no professional NCO core and if you were were a clever um, bio multilingual um, conscript you were more likely to be asked to become an NCO and afterwards uh, after you served longer as an NCO you also had the right to get a good job in um, in public administration and so bio multilingualism really helped for for careers and for life and to climb up the social ladder it still does i can actually attest to that <laughs> um okay now sticking to the idea of uh german as uh, as the main sort of language of command um we have a question from auburn al who asks what kind of german was the military standard was it High German, was it, he says, uh, Wienerisch, so the local dialect in Vienna, of which there are a couple of variations, or some other kind? <laughs> well, it's a really good question. I mean, in the end, no one of us knows how they really spoke and how they sounded. Um, I can only go for which uh, terms they used in administration or in correspondence, which was official. And I mean, it's of course, it's Austrian, German. So they used the word, for example, Rebisel and and not uh, with the word which is nowadays used in Germany. Um, This is a type of berry, by the way. Okay. <laughs> so they used the Austrian, something like an Austrian standard German, but uh, writing and everyday uh, communication is something different. And I think, I mean, lots of officers um, were not had not German as native language. But on the other hand, lots of them left their families um, very early in childhood and joined one of these pre-military schools where they had uh, German as language of instruction and there they learned German. But which kind of German? I mean, if you read letters Uh, when one of these officers wrote to other officers, I mean, they mixed. It's it's um, something like today's Austrian standard German, but it's um, it's so mixed with um, terms and phrases from other languages. And this is also why um, there was some kind of a joke that you get to know officers even if they are in um, not in uniform because they speak army German. Like they, they mix up all the other languages of the monarchy with, with their standard German. On the other hand, um, I can imagine um, that it was not that easy if even when someone, for example, who learned proper standard German in a military um, cadet school or officer school who came from Hungary or had a Czech background and then had to train conscripts from Tyrol or for even worse, Vorarlberg, because even I sometimes do not understand them today. So I can imagine that even the standard German, it was not as easy as to train soldiers with a really hard dialect or their own jargon. Uh, what is also really important is, I mean, in these 
days, uh, in the Habsburg times, um, people were, I mean, it's a skill to learn standard German is a skill even as a native speaker. And so in these days, I mean, today it's much easier for all of us because we're watching TV all the time in, in standard German. But in these days, there were lots of conscripts from some, some villages in Tyrol who really almost never heard standard German. I mean, not even by the priest in the church. Um, so I think it was that was some kind of challenge very often. But on the other hand, again, I need to say that it was usually, although many officers said, yeah, we... Um, We faced a challenge with training these soldiers in these languages. I mean, in the end, it was most often the NCOs who came from the same region as the conscripts who did most of the training job. And now shifting into another Germanic language, we have a question about Yiddish, which uh, was for those viewers who are listeners who might not know, uh, the sort of common language of many Jewish communities in Central and Eastern Europe at the time. So was it treated in any way as one of the kind of officially recognized languages, or was it sort of assumed that Jewish speakers of Yiddish would function in German uh, when they were fulfilling their roles in the military? Well, it's a really, it's a really good question, and uh, finally, I also ended up um, writing a chapter on that in my book because uh, what I asked myself first, and I need to say a bit more about the regulations. So the regulations said that only recognized languages are possible regimental languages, and Yiddish was not among them. Of course, there was this, um, a debate going on, a political debate in public to um, to, uh, to give uh, Yiddish the role of uh, recognized languages, but it, it failed. So I asked myself what did happen with, in particular, Yiddish speakers from Galicia. So we're so I went to uh, Lemberg, Lviv, um, to work with the personnel files of the conscripts from Galicia because I was interested in when they list up the languages these conscripts spoke, did they mention Yiddish or not? Uh, interestingly, um, usually Yiddish is not mentioned. So you recognize that someone, because religion was mentioned in a personnel file, you recognize this was a Jew. But usually they were mentioned to speak, they were noted down to speak German. So usually Yiddish was treated as German in the army. What is really important that you can um, change um, percentages with the Jews in Galicia. And, and the regulation, for example, said that, okay, the citizen rights said that every conscript has the right to be trained in native language. But in reality, it was like that um, conscripts in a regiment had to make up 20% that their language is recognized. So if they are less than 20%, it's not recognized. If you now count that, for example, 30% of a Galician regiment are Yiddish speakers, and you just drop in their personnel file, like saying, okay, they speak Yiddish, but it's not recognized in the army. So we should note all the other languages these conscripts spoke. And usually Jewish conscripts were multilingual. So you can either write down, they spoke German, Polish, and Ruthenian, or you just drop German by saying it's Yiddish, this person does not speak um, uh, German, it's Yiddish. So you just drop this by saying it's only Polish and Ruthenian. Then you can totally change Uh, the linguistic environment of a company or a regiment, which means if you don't count Yiddish as German, 
then you usually end up by this company is only using Polish and Ruthenian. If you count the Yiddish as German, you have high percentage of so-called of German nationality in Galician regiments. And this is what usually happened because if you look on on the percentages of the regiments, you see that there is so many soldiers of German nationality from Galicia. But these are most often the Yiddish speakers. Okay. Um, well, all that stuff is extremely interesting. Um, we had a couple of, let's say, bonus questions that uh, we probably won't expect you to go into such detail on. Uh, one of them was about English. And I think you recently published a blog post about this as well. There's apparently some some uh, impressions out there that um, there may have been a regiment using English in the Habsburg army. Is there anything to that? Well, uh, the official answer would be uh, English was never recognized as regimental language in the Habsburg army. The other thing is that I sometimes in the last years, I came across some diary entries and newspaper article which were talking about there were lots of returnees from uh, migrants to the U.S. who had to return to the Habsburg monarchy to fulfill their three-year military service. And then officers or uh, newspapers were complaining that they spoke only English and so they had to train them in English. I mean, what I did as an army historian is that I immediately went into the uh, ministerial files in the archives and I never found any debate, internal ministerial debate about this. Uh, but still, up to the First World War, there is sometimes you come across entries in diaries where someone's saying, well, I had to, for example, I'm from Vienna as an officer, have to command um, soldiers from Hungary who speak only Hungarian, but also English because they lived in the U.S. And so I commanded or I talked to my uh, soldiers in English. Sometimes you come across that, but, um, and this is why I did this blog, I was um, somehow desperately looking for maybe more sources, uh, maybe a diary of one of these soldiers who had to serve in the army by speaking only English or something like that, because so far I found nothing. But quite uh, an intriguing idea if something does uh, come up. And finally, because on the, on the show we've been dealing the past year and a half so much with this post-armistice period, I know this is not your area of expertise, but uh, you mentioned to me earlier that you have stumbled across uh, one or two interesting anecdotes about how things played out when the empire breaks up and you have all these new armies being formed. It must have been a bit of a linguistic mess in some cases. I mean, this, uh, what happened with the former officers, and but also NCOs from Habsburg times in post-war, so um, after 1918, I mean, uh, some or many of them tried to get a job in the newly founded armies. But on the other hand, there was in most countries huge distrust towards this former enemy, for example, in what was later named Yugoslavia. I mean, they called these former Habsburg soldiers Naftali, like from Naftaline. So they are smelling to old days and rotten things. Yeah? Um, so there was some huge di 
distrust. And I can also imagine that maybe some officers who did not speak Croatian but ended up uh, in Yugoslavia, it was really hard for them to get a new job. So most of them were looking for, for different engagement or tried to um, to emigrate uh, to Austria or many ended up in the United States. Uh, just an anecdote to the German language of command, someone told me years ago, is that, I mean, there were not many horses survived the First World War because when they had nothing to eat, they ended up eating the horses. But someone told me that the, the army horses um, are to be commanded in German. And some of them ended up in the, newly fa in, in the Romanian army. And so in the beginning, they had to uh, command them in German before they learned the new Romanian commands <laughs> so it goes even beyond the uh, the human soldiers in that case okay um, Tamara thank you so much for sharing with us about this uh, I mean for me and for a lot of our viewers we had a ton of interest I couldn't include all of the viewer questions uh, we had so many but for those of you listening out there our Patreon supporters If you're interested in this topic, Tamara has published all sorts of different things. There's a recent article she put out on multilingualism in the army. There's the blog post that came out about um, trying to find out a bit more about English. And she also has um, an upcoming publication as well. So Tamara, can you tell us where our viewers and listeners can find out about uh, the books that you've published? Uh, well, I've published some so far, as you said. Thank you so much for mentioning this. But in particular, the language diversity issue is uh, not yet hugely published. So I'm in this crucial situation that I've submitted the manuscript and still waiting for reply. Uh, but uh, in meanwhile, if you want to read something, I've also published like this blog on Botstiber homepage, which deals with uh, the myth of English as regimental language language or I've published also in volume so check out if you use Academia Edu. I've also during Corona times started to have a YouTube channel so the, lots of the uh, videos are dealing with the with the language diversity in the army so feel free to join me or on Twitter where I post whatever I find which is intriguing on the army and multilingualism. All right, so we, Flo, will find a way to uh, share some of those links with all of you. So thank you, Tamara, for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation.